Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori. Today, it is a Brother, Brother podcast. And as our Brother, Brotherdom has uh, become a trend, so uh, we are going to do two episodes in a row from the record shelf. Uh, Last time we did X's Under the Big Black Sun, and this time we are going to uh, thwart uh, what would be normal logic on the 20th anniversary of the release of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and take Wilco's preceding record, uh, Summer Teeth, one of my favorites and definitely one of Jeremy's. So, Jared, what do you think? Yeah, well, I'm excited to do this record and uh, excited for our, our second installment of the uh, the record shelf. This is going to be an ongoing series that will kind of, I don't know if we've figured out a, a rhythm yet or not, if we're going to just kind of do it when we feel it or, or kind of make um, more of a, a kind of annual uh, occurrence out of it. But um, but yeah, you mentioned uh, this is a, the, is it the 20 year anniversary? Sorry, um, yeah, 20, 20 year anniversary. 20 right? years from... Yankee Hotel Fox. Yankee Hotel Fox. Right. No, that's what I meant. And um, and because there's a lot of great information and great uh, stories being written on uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, arguably um, a lot of people's favorite Wilco album, and, and definitely an album that defined the band. We're gonna take one step uh, backwards into uh, their third album, 1999, Summer Teeth, which is actually my favorite album, and that's uh, really one of the the points of this series we're running is, is taking some albums that we think are great um not always underappreciated but um this one was definitely appreciated but but not always thought of as, as their best and uh i'm gonna just start yeah, it not, off not, sorry go ahead not necessarily the bands you know uh not necessarily the the sort of um consensus classic uh for any given band but um in this case it is uh it is 100 authentic our um, fandom for Summer Teeth. Uh, it is also my favorite Wilco album, so take it away. Definitely, and I'm going to kick it off with uh, the 1999 Rolling Stone review by none other than uh, Greg Cott, who uh, has been a longtime friend of the band's and, and actually a biographer to some degrees, written some books and things. And uh, his Rolling Stone, which gave it three and, three and a half stars out of five, was on their third album, Summer Teeth, Wilco Creates the Roots Rock answer to Beck's Odelay, if not to Brian Eno's Another Green World. Like Beck and Eno and Brian Wilson and the Beatles before them, Wilco uses the studio like an instrument, unreeling mini movies of imagination, blending and then binding the sound of guitars, drums, and thrift shop array of vintage keyboards. Summer Teeth's 16 songs, including two hidden tracks, are a dire bunch. On Via Chicago, Jeff Tweedy sings to his lover, I dreamed about killing you again last night and it felt all right to me. Yet the multi-layered textures that snake around Tweedy's troubled voice are often uplifting. Songs that begin in an air of choking claustrophobia end up on a rooftop gazing at the stars. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I like that, that little excerpt there. Um, and we'll get into a little bit of the the vibe of the record and how it was kind of a bit of a, a, a career turn for the band in terms of sonics and music style. But, um, you know, the album definitely has a dark undertone and, and I'll give a little history, but let's talk about kind of what was around the release of, of 1999. You, you got some references there with Bex Odelay. I mean, that's uh, probably not... That was too, 96, yeah. 96, yeah, too far off. 
Um, but the, the charts, if you want to, I'd be happy to read them off or if you want to win it, it's, it, this is a period of time, mind you, 1999, I should have been graduating from college that year. I had instead left college and, and moved down to Austin, Texas. You were in New York city or in Boston, back in Boston? I had just moved to Boston and That's right. it was, uh, it was, you know, the millennium was a big deal. The Y2K, um, was it referred to as a Y2K virus or a Y2K issue was really everyone's chief concern uh, on yes, the, the, the top singles top. of the time. And I and looking at the top singles, um, you know, I had the rare occasion of, of only knowing, you know, I mean, still to this day, I think I only know about half of these. <laughs> I was going to say the same um, thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of these artists I never even heard of, which is insane. Yeah. Um, but then there's a couple that absolutely, you know, put me right back into the, into the space where, uh, you know, it put me right back into the, you know, the era of 1999. So number one was Believe by Cher, uh, which is kind of, you could have told me, yeah, but, but you could have told me that came out somewhere between 88 and 2000 and I'd be like, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it did, but, um, you could have told me that came out in 94 and I'd believe you. Angel of Mind by Monica. A uh, song I'm not familiar with, Heartbreak Hotel, Whitney Houston, Angel by Sarah McLaughlin, which I'm largely uh, familiar with from the dog abuse commercials <laughs> on late night television. Um, All I Have to Give by the Backstreet Boys, not one of the ones that I know by them. I Still Believe by Mariah Carey, again, artist I'm very familiar with and a song that I don't, not sure I am. Nobody's Supposed to Be Here by Deborah Cox, somebody I've never in my life heard of. No. Uh, baby one more then the last three are the ones that really absolutely define that year for me baby one more time by britney spears yes. every morning by sugar ray and no scrubs by tlc all iconic tunes that if you told me those were on the charts i could tell you it was 1999 yeah and definitely outlasted um all i have to give by the backstreet boys or um whoever the heck uh you know or the entire deborah cox Deborah career. Cox's, yeah but, um, you know, it was definitely that, that period. And, and the, what made me kind of laugh thinking back was this is certainly pre-internet. This is still cable television. Uh, or not pre-internet. Internet is around, obviously. But, like, you know, it's yeah, not as but standard. You know, I remember having a job at the internet. time. And it was the first time I'd surfed the net. You know, it wasn't in my house, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, you could kind you of tune out site. of... Yeah, tune out of college radio. You know, I listen to college radio, and, and so I, there's a good reason, aside from the songs that are just inescapable, like No Scrubs and also Classics and Baby One More Time. You know, it just wasn't a period where this was a, a lot of this stuff was in my face. Um, I was, however, you know, and then some, some of the albums that came out that year, too. This was the Shania Twain, In Sync, Ricky Martin, you know, Garth Brooks, uh, Double Live album. The Offsprings, like probably third album at that point, you know, and, and uh, in the big wide open spaces, which is a huge hit by the Dixie Chicks, which I probably did here living in Texas more than, than I uh, wanted to at the time. And then, of course, can't forget Limp Biscuit. So this is a pretty rough period in, uh, in mm. music. And it's it was kind of interesting. I was just thinking to our last episode where we talked about X, where you had this kind of in between uh, transitional yeah, yeah. formats and, and, you know, with video and, and radio and you kind of had a pretty cool eclectic like mix on the radio this is completely the clear channel world at this point you know where you're yeah you're 100 program for hits and and mtv is 
turning more to programming rather than music videos. Um, it's been sort of trending that way, but it's it gets way more acute around this time, I would say. Yep. Yeah, I think there was a lot more of the shows. MTV had kind of shifted from videos yeah. to like uh, to total yeah. TL, total recall live. I mean, Christian would, would help us here because he, he had to have watched all of that. He non-stop. was bathed in it. <laughs> yeah, and he was subjected to that and new metal and all the things that we could kind of avoid, um, yeah. you know, as consumers with, with some sort of agency over what we were listening to. I mean, I was listening, flipping between, you know, I was in Boston, so WFNX and WERS and, you know, college, college radio and, and, you know, this uh, juggernaut that was in Boston, WFNX, which was, you know, one of the better independent stations in the country still. Yep. Um, started leaning a bit towards, you know, a little heavy uh, around 311 and uh, Sugar Ray around that time. But, you know, it still had some, still got some nuggets uh, through that uh, station. But they weren't, they weren't playing... Wilco, were they? No, no, nobody was playing Wilco. Um, you know, and just a brief history, we won't go too too in depth here because I think if anybody has heard of Wilco or is a fan, they certainly know the story. But um, Jeff Tweedy, the the co-founder and, and uh, co-songwriter and singer of Uncle Tupelo, Uncle Tupelo kind of dissolves in the late 90s after Anodyne and, um, you know, uh, Jay Ferrara, the other leader of that band, starts Sunvolt and Jeff Tweedy starts Wilco. And, uh, you know, both, I think Jay Ferrara was kind of considered the critic's choice at that time. Um, and certainly mine. Yeah, definitely. I think we both enjoyed Trace a lot better than, certainly better than AM. Um, around the time Bean There comes out, I really started to kind of tune into Wilco. Um, I actually had moved down to Austin and gosh, it was probably 97 or 96. And I caught them on the last night of that tour. And I have two experiences with this kind of Summer Teeth being their lineup for the most part. And, and it was it was probably one of the best shows I, I'd seen ever in, in my short lifetime at that period. And, um, and I was just kind of taken by that album. I really started to listen to that album quite a bit. I think I, I got you hooked on it um, around mm-hmm. that time. So I was anticipating and excited to hear... Um, to hear, sorry, Summer Teeth, um, I was, you know, ready for their next album. What kind of transpired in between that, and, you know, so the band basically was pretty much the the remnants of Uncle Tupelo formed Wilco, minus Jay Farrar. Um, they ended up then kind of switching out um, drummers for a guy, Ken, um, Ken Coomer, by, and that was post, post AM, and then... Um, and then Formerly Jay Bennett, of Nashville's Clockhammer, yeah, yeah. Jay Bennett joined as well, who was a musician from from I think he was located around like um, Belleville, Illinois, or not Belleville. Sorry, he was down in um, wherever the University of Champaign, um, where Champaign the University. Urbana, yep. yeah. And so they kind of added these two guys. So the original members, John uh, Strott and uh, Jeff Tweedy, then now joined by Ken Coomer and uh, and Jay Bennett form kind of what becomes I think probably like my you know I'm not gonna say maybe it's probably the band's not the band's favorite lineup <laughs> personally personnel wise and I think the the drummer um gosh Glenn Kotchke I'm messing up all these names pretty badly yeah, later yeah came in later is probably it was a huge addition um but I think this this 
uh, grouping of the band was definitely my favorite live period and some of my favorite music by them. Yeah, I could I could see that. I I think um, you know it was definitely it, it's funny there the the um, you know the comparison between you know Radiohead and. Uh, Wilco are kind of, um, you know, strained, but the one thing you could say for both is they, you know, they both put out a first album that they weren't entirely thrilled with, uh, followed by a second one that seemed to be a quantum leap forward um, in terms of their own development. And, um, you know, in the, in this case, Being There, which was a double album, um, really was, you know, you wouldn't have necessarily known it was the same band. And that was the really, I think, the addition of, of Jay Bennett um, you know, and moving into a, a, you know, sort of, you know, I think, uh, Jeff Tweedy coming out of Uncle Tupelo had, had kind of, uh, some of his confidence knocked out and, and, um, you know, was growing as a writer, was learning how to carry his own band and, um, AM is a, you know, is a, is a nice album, but, um, you know, I wouldn't have anticipated being there, um, coming from, the band that put out AM, and then again, I wouldn't have predicted Summer Teeth from the band that put out Being There. No, not at all. And I think one of the things that, you know, Being There brought, so, you know, just to give some context to the time period, you kind of had this resurgence of, of hipsters and, and, I guess, punk music fans and stuff, kind of uh, going back to Roots music, which was, was primarily Uncle Tupelo's kind of shtick. Um, you know, they were allowed. Yeah, they were about 10 years early. Yeah, they were allowed. They sort of created a scene in, in a way. And you had a really diehard following. I mean, I think this is still a time period that we talk about in other episodes where, you know, people are very tied to a genre. Like, I had friends who just listened to Britpop, you know? And it was like, mm-hmm. but there's other good music too, and Britpop's great. But it's like, no, I'm a, I'm a fan of Britpop, you know? Or, or I just listened to, like, indie, or I just listened to hardcore, you know? Um, and I think that there had been a little bit of a hardening around the sort of authentic roots uh, rock revival that was kind of going on. And um, and Wilco really broke that with being there. Um, not that that album is not at all rootsy and not at all Americana. It is. It's a, it's a pretty straightforward American rock record. But they added Rocka. piano, um, you know, Beach Boy-ish style uh, horns. You know, it, it's, uh, it's just got a lot more going on. And it was... Uh, sort of homage to rock and roll, you know, and Summer Teeth and, you know, comes out and it's, you know, like Sgt. Pepper's compared sonically. That well, is. yeah, I mean, you know, going back to your intro from Greg Cott, it is when they started using the studio as, a, as an instrument. Exactly. And I, and I do agree that Bennett brought a lot of that. And a little bit of the history there, this is also around the time. So in 98, uh, Mermaid Avenue is, is released, which is the Billy Bragg and Wilco collaboration um, that are taking un, unearthed kind of Woody Guthrie songs and putting music to them. 99, Summer Teeth, and then 2000, Volume 2 of Mermaid Avenue. So the band basically gets off tour at, um, from being there, probably actually around the time I saw them, because in 97 they started the sessions of Summer Teeth, and they started in Willie Nelson's studio in, in Spicewood, Texas, um, apparently, you know, just reading up on it, the, at the time Tweedy was having some, some marital issues and happy to say he's still married to the same woman today. And, and, uh, but I, I think touring and it was definitely wearing on, on their lifestyle and he had his first son and drugs. Yeah. yeah and drugs. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, um, they basically laid down as a band, kind of the, the base sort of outline for what Summer Teeth would become. 
and then finished it in, in um, King Size Sound Lab in Chicago in 98 with Bob Ludwig mastering it and Jim Scott mixing it with the band, um, but the band being kind of the producers there. And, uh, you know, basically at the time, I think Tweedy's writing also kind of excelled. So you had kind of AM, which was, you know, very much could have been, you could have taken a collection of the Jeff Tweedy songs from the Uncle Tupelo years and put them on an album. You know, they, they really mm-hmm. felt like what he was becoming in Uncle Tupelo. You had um, Bean there, which actually takes a, a little deeper look into, like, I think some very touchy love songs. Um, a little fun, more introspective. Yeah, definitely more introspective, a little bit more, um, you know, and then some fun kind of just rock and roll uh, songs. Anthem but, rock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, and, and kind of, I think, in a way, like I said, sort of paying tribute to his love for music and love for rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, on this album, you know, a quote from Tweedy that I read recently was, you know, I definitely wanted to get better at writing and those things happen simultaneously with trying to read better. I would often write tons of stuff in my head and forget some songs on being there. I don't think I ever wrote any lyrics down. To fight that, I started writing words on paper and making up melodies to go with them. By writing things down and putting more words into my head, it put more words in my mouth when I turned on the tape to record and sing. So, I mean, I think, you know, that's something that you definitely, I felt like was a big jump here. When you, when you turn on this album, you, you definitely, especially track two. So it starts off with can't stand it. And, um, which was a song that they added later for the record company and is probably a little bit more of a jumpy pop song, actually well, well well-constructed pop song. But right after that, you go into She's a Jar and, and some of the other songs that just are different. I mean, it's not like these lyrics mm-hmm. are, you know, uh, going to change the world by any means, but they are definitely coming from a guy that you it's weren't more, expecting. more leaning towards poetry. Yep. And I think, you know, I don't think you can discount, um, you know, the Woody Guthrie, Billy Bragg inf- influence on that. I mean, Billy Bragg, I think, you know, I, I actually don't know that much about um, their interaction or the... You I'll know give you how a well bit, they but work, yeah. but Billy Bragg is first and foremost a poet. You know, he is a he's a very very you know strong writer, very literate guy, and um, I can see where the you know the um, you know the accent fell on you know so to speak um, you know where the Im- importance was uh, on lyrics um, kind of uh, prevailed after working. Um, you know, on the works of a very poetic songwriter, Woody Guthrie, with a very poetic songwriter, Billy Bragg. Yeah, and I think some of the, it's a good point, and I think some of the interesting thing around that is, it's just a, it's a really busy, weird time for the band, and you know, you mentioned drugs, and I, I think this was a period, a dark period, Jeff Tweedy, who has spoken really openly about his addictions and being sober, um, but he was not sober at this time. I think a lot of, you know, stresses in life and they were sort of picked to be Billy Bragg's backing band um, for this project and or not backing band, sorry, co, co-band for the project. I don't actually think they got along from what I've heard and, and read that they got along that well. And I think a lot of it came to, you know, first of all, you had sort of a, a team, right, in Wilco um, mm-hmm. versus kind of one guy, Billy Bragg. And then I think they really had... Um, different approaches to the music. So I I actually heard Jeff Tweedy say once, and this was years ago, so I'm absolutely paraphrasing here, but I thought it was, it was very insightful and kind of gives you an idea when you go back and listen to those albums was that what he thought was so interesting about getting his hands on all of those lyrics, um, which were very influential 
was how many of them were not political and, and you know, kind of typical things that you think of Woody Guthrie. A lot of them were, were love songs or were songs about his kids or mm-hmm. were, and I think Tweedy mentioned that that's really what he wanted to lean into because he just thought that was just a part of Woody Guthrie that nobody knew. Whereas if you know Billy Bragg, which we both do, it, um, he's definitely going to lean into the, the marching songs of the workers. And, um, and it's, I yeah, think, I mean, he was. He, I knew Billy Bragg was a socialist before I knew what he sounded like. I mean, right. he, he led with that always in his, you know, in his press tours and everything. And and if you think about it too, um, you know, I go a lot deeper on Billy Bragg than I'm sure you do. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, I you know, know one we both song. are big fans of, yeah. of you know, a New England, which is his you know most famous song and, yeah. and a phenomenal song it's and a great just a song. great. It's a great lyric, but I mean, you know, it's him playing a uh, electric guitar on the track, on the album track. I mean, it was not, you know, with no accompaniment. It right. is, you know, it's not like he puts it, he doesn't put the time, he doesn't put the emphasis on music and Wilco didn't put the emphasis on lyrics. And I think those two things, you know, um, came together very nicely. Yeah, and that album was was quite a success. And it also, you know, I think was nominated for Grammys and probably took a little bit of steam away from Summer Keith. Not that it probably wouldn't have been a hit looking oh, back on the billboard did. charts, but it definitely took some of that away. It's funny. I mean, I'm not a huge Billy Bragg fan, just uh, having mentioned that I, you know, I love that one song and I, I have tried to listen to some other stuff. It's not necessarily my thing. Um, I respect the guy. I do think though, the Wilco songs really stand out on those albums. And I think they do. that was a thing that, you know, probably caused a little bit of uh, contention as well. So, I don't think that was lost on anyone, and I think that that those albums got a lot of hype, especially in the NPR world and, and kind of, uh, you know, literate, educated crowds. And um, and I think Billy, it was Billy Bragg's project, but I think people, you can't help listen to those and be like, oh man, these Wilco songs are awesome, <laughs> you know? No, I mean, Cal- California Stars is still a staple of their live right. act, and, you know, it's, it's just a almost perfect song, you know what I mean? And the band just did a great job of bringing lyrics to life, you know. Um, yeah. Which brings us kind of... actually Sorry, the, the lack of pressure on... I mean, I think I think Tweedy cannibalized the release of, of Summer Teeth a little bit with the Mermaid Avenue stuff. But frankly, having the, you know, having the uh, pressure taken off of them lyrically on something like Mermaid Avenue, you know, allowed them to produce some really great songs, you know, free of the self consciousness that that sometimes plagues people when they're going into the studio yeah and i also got a sense you were talking about confidence you know i think obviously they got a lot of um acclaim and and definitely um being there was it was one of the top rated critic choices of, of the year it came out um but i also think doing the woody guthrie thing and getting that kind of um you know critical acclaim and, and notice too was something that built confidence and, you know, basically the Summer Teeth record, from what I understand, was was pretty much, you know, done. The songs were, were written for the most part, not, you know, not all of them in that those Texas sessions, but they really came to life um, in Chicago. And, you know, the band had ended up in Dublin, Boston, Chicago, based on, you know, the, the Billy Bragg recordings. Jeff Tweedy had lives in Chicago. Jay Bennett lives in Chicago at the time. John um, Strott lived in New Orleans, and Ken Coomer lived in um, I want to say Tennessee, Nashville. Nashville. He why well, yeah. his former band Clockhammer was was Nashville, so I assume he was in Nashville. Yeah, that's that's where he was. And so 
um, what ended up happening is, is really Jay and John and what's been described as a little bit of a drug fueled, um, mixing and, and re-recording session, you know, Jay Bennett had apparently gotten himself on a hands on a vintage Mellotron and, uh, and lots of painkillers were taken, but they really sonically expanded the songs out. Um, you know, I've heard two competing kind of takes on this. There's a quote I have from from Ken Coomer, who who later was um, released from the band um, right before they rec- finished recording, or right before recording Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. But it was, you know, he described it as it was circling the wagon wagons, and John and I felt left out. It was Jeff and Jay feeding off each other, not just musically, but other vi- vices. There was a bonding going on, and it didn't just involve music. Jeff didn't go into rehab for addiction to painkillers, but he should have. In my opinion, in my opinion, Jay was taking painkillers and antidepressants and wasn't in much better shape. The band was different. There wasn't really a band, just two guys in their minds in the studio. So, you know, the counter to that is I have heard John um, Strott talk about that time, and it definitely sounds like, you know, he, he basically explained it as, well, I lived in a different city, so did Ken. Those guys were working every day, and it was actually what why he decided to move to Chicago. And so, mm-hmm. you know, John picked up and actually moved and he said he remembers those sessions as, as a lot more collaborative than, than others. But, you know, it definitely was, um, you know, Jay had a huge influence on this album for sure. And he and Jeff definitely delved deep into, into creating new sounds and those sounds. When you listen to them, I find this album. And I think one of the reasons we both like it is, you know, Apparently they were listening to a, a ton of Elvis Costello tractions, a ton of zombies, um, a ton of Clash actually, which you don't totally get on these songs, but you do hear, you know, just sonically in a, a, a completely different direction. I mean, you cannot call this album anything but psych pop, psychedelic pop, right? Or mm-hmm. you know, it's not a it's not a country record. It's not a it's a you know certainly a, a there's rock no and country song record. on it. What's yeah. that? There's no country song on it. No. And I think for a band that, that you know, had kind of come up in a scene or, or created a scene, as I said, and, and then became sort of the, the you know, maybe unintended kind of... Uh, poster children. Yeah, poster yeah. kids of that scene. People were a little taken back. I, I, I found I lost friends who were Wilco fans when this album came out and gained a lot of new people who weren't actually that big mm-hmm. of fans of Wilco when this album came out because... They, you know, were like, oh, this is, this is rad. You know, this sounds totally different. Yeah, I remember taking a bunch of people to see Wilco, um, knowing that I, you know, had seen them before and they were good, but, you know, really getting my doors blown off. um, And also um, was doubly pleased because the band that opened was a band that we had championed from way, way back um, that we loved um, and really think is one of the most underappreciated bands in, in modern history, uh, Beulah. Yeah, totally. And you know what? I was just going to say, it's funny you mentioned Beulah because we both uh, love Beulah and we saw them open for another Elephant Six band, which I was just going to mention, um, Apples and Stereo. And I don't think it was coincidence by any means, actually. I mean, sorry, I do think it was coincidence. I don't think it was it was meant to be anything. But this was kind of a period of underground music really going back to some of that. To It's like everybody discovered 60s. pet sounds the same year, you know? And you or, had, or, you know, Odyssey, you know, Oracle and Odyssey. Right. And you Odyssey had, and Oracle. Um, you had, you know, the Elephant Six 
people out of Georgia, like, uh, you know, Olivia Tremor Control and, and um, Neutral Milk Hotel and Apples and Beulah out of the West Coast. And I think this album kind of really fit into a period where, you know, um, indie music or, or kind of alternative music, whatever you want to call it back then, was really exploring that that psychedelic scene, you know, whether it's like mm-hmm. dogs in the background shaking. Well, it's kind of, it, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like anything. I mean, you, uh, you know, you go back 25 years and, you know, it's what people are listening to. I mean, right now, 25 years ago was 1992 and, and you're hearing a lot of, you know, grunge at the moment. You're hearing a lot right. of stuff that was big in the in the early '90s, making a you know having a renaissance. So um, you know, it, one one aside, and this is a complete sidestep. So it's uh, apropos of nothing, and um, it is not. I'm not going to transition back in it very smoothly. But I have been hearing um, Sparks' song "This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us." Someone's using it on an ad at the moment, oh, and. Nice. Um, I realized that if there's any band that was, you know, because we saw the Sparks documentary, we talk about the, the sort of scope of their influence rather than, you know, the, the power of their popularity. But uh, if there's one band that just completely must have devoured the entire Sparks catalog, it's of Montreal. Oh, yeah. And they really <laughs> sound alike. No, that makes sense. And you had a funny text to me last night, too, as uh, why anyone hasn't uh, compared Big Star to, to America's uh, Badfinger, um, which is yeah, also right on, a, you know. That might be another episode, but yeah. Definitely. Um, well, cool. Well, let's, uh, let's take a quick break, and uh, let's listen to uh, Always in Love off Summer Teeth, and then we'll come back and, and uh, Sweet. wrap up our thoughts on this album. <laughs> to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are back on the record shelf talking about Wilco's Summer Teeth, uh, both of our favorite Wilco record. And you had a uh, you had an interesting interlude with a band called Summer Teeth around this time. <laughs> Is that correct? I did. I went and saw Summer Teeth and uh, it must have been 99 or, or maybe, uh, yeah, had to have been 99. And um, I was living in Austin, and Wilco was touring with R.E.M. At that time, like, Austin didn't have a venue that really held um, bands that had kind of graduated to stadium size. Um, occasionally, you get somebody at the UT, uh, you know, basketball arena, basketball but for arena. the most part, yeah, it was, uh, 
just kind of they skipped it. I mean, I, I remember, you know, like Radiohead didn't even play Austin. You know, they played like Houston and Dallas and, and San Antonio. And, and so REM, who had Wilco opening for them at the time, which you had mentioned earlier, um, was on tour. And, and during those tours, they weren't allowed to play club dates, you know, around the city or it had to be a certain amount of miles around. And Austin and San Antonio were fairly close. Um, and so there was a rumor that, you know, they were playing as Summer Teeth and, and you know, you kind of, took a, a flyer on it um, and it was at Antone's which, which was an old classic blues club really good sound like some of the best sound ever but not a place you ever saw uh, uh, you know bands you would see sort of like headliners blues legends or like Maceo Parker would come play there stuff like that yeah and so uh, my friend Walker and I stood in line and we got in and you know we certainly had a few drinks and uh, you know a, a guy comes out in a marching band outfit and just breaks into talking head psycho killer and we're just like okay you know like kind of not sure you know still young enough to be not sure what the hell was going on um and then he goes into like you know i think a couple other like come together by the beatles you know basically just you know a dude playing a I think it was guitar. immigrant song didn't you say well that's what all of a sudden he started in a beatles song i think it was come together and then the band wilco comes out and, and starts to back him up so basically it was their roadie which i found out later in a, in a great high school marching band outfit, you know, first song solo, second song kicks off, come together, Wilco comes and backs them up. Then they go into like Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song, and I forget a few other just classic covers, into a full Wilco set as he leaves the stage, which was probably to this day, and, and I think Walker, my, my buddy, would, would agree, uh, the best show we ever saw. I mean, my ears were ringing for four days after. They, they were way too loud for that space. Um... But it also was just just a kick-ass show and just a fun way to, to kick it off. And I, I think this is – Wilco, if, if you've seen them recently, you know, they've had the same lineup now for a number of years with Nels Klein and um, Pat Samson. And, and Almost 20, yeah. Yeah, some of the other guys. And, and I think the band they're, – they're rip live. They're a great live band. They're definitely older. They're definitely, you know, uh, more professional, I would say. And um, But they're still great if you, if you like them, worth seeing. But this was a time period where they were really loose – and um and really <laughs> fucked up a lot of the time and uh, not saying being fucked up makes for the best shows always but the couple that i did catch certainly were um this is a time where you still could have a cigarette dangling from your mouth which jay bennett made sure he always did um you know doing his best keith richards impression there and uh and it was just like it was it was just a great like it's hard to explain i think for you it was probably your you know seeing the replacements on a good night and uh, and for me, it was definitely seeing Wilco at this time period um, where I just was never disappointed. And, and they just ripped and rollicked through, through uh, you know, just bringing these songs to life. I mean, this is a time when, you know, the band for this tour in particular did 97 shows in 75 cities in Europe, Canada, and the U.S. I mean, that's relentless, you know? Um, yeah. You know, needless to say, the, the relationships within the band sort of frayed. And Jeff and, and John uh, Strott are still the the uh, the only two Anchor. founding members around. So John Strott yeah, uh, must be the most reasonable guy in music because he's uh, he's definitely managed to kind of keep his his position in this band. And obviously they're they're close and, and friends, but he's also um, been there from the beginning. But yeah, it's a it's a it was definitely a great great period. And, and you know some of the. The songs on this album that are our favorites, I mean, we talked about the lyrics, you know, you, you definitely took a darker kind of turn, um, but with kind of a, at times a sh psychedelic kind of sunshiny, even pop 
feel, you know, there's definitely the murder ballot via Chicago, you know, dreamed about killing you again last night, you know, which was the, the opening line, which kind of took you for um, a ride, you know, you're like, ooh, okay. Um, one of my favorite songs, which is actually a very poppy song, is, is Summer Teeth, and, you know, some mm-hmm. of Jeff's lyrics on that, One Summer Suicide, Another Autumn Traveler's Guide, he hits uh, snooze twice before he dies. Um, and every evening when he gets home to make his supper and eat it alone, you know, his black shirt cries while his shoes get cold. So obviously a lot more poetic there, but if you listen to that song, you know, if you take those lyrics, one summer of suicide, you're kind of like another darker, dark turn there, but that's a really great, just pop jangle song. What are some of your faves off the album? I was, you know, I think the album is weirdly sort of, uh, backloaded. Yeah, Um, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I think, um... Candy Floss was always a, you know, title I hated and a song that I love. Yeah. Um, Every Little Thing, ELT, I guess it's called, um, Summer Teeth, they're all towards the end of the album. And it's like there's a lull in the middle and then it, it's a, it's like a really well-paced album um, if you're listening to it start to finish. I mean, it starts off with a bunch of songs that sound like hits that sound, you know, that are very, you know, sort of 60s influenced. And, you know, you hit the sort of, you know, hit the middle yeah, with and it gets a little how dour. to fight loneliness, things like that. Mm-hmm. Which is a beautiful song too. Yep, and um, and very simple. Um, and then you you get a sort of dessert at the end. You get the reward at the end, which is you know some really fun upbeat stuff like Candy Floss, Every Little Thing, and and uh, Summer Teeth. Uh, Summer Teeth, by the way, the the phrase I'm sure most people know by now, but uh, is an old joke about the south you know they got summer teeth you know summer there summer ain't um right (laughs) and and so that you know that was always a joke down south um but uh yeah i think um you know the the stuff at the beginning is is great but i i you know i really treasure the the tail end of the record more than anything yeah i think it's um, it's almost like a gift that keeps giving and um i think it was a time for me where you know i I really love being there and, and I've gone back and, and given being there a million listens. And I think, you know, we, we talked about, we had a grand slam kind of episode years back when we first started and mine was Wilco with being there, summer teeth, Yankee hotel, Foxtrot and ghost is born. And it's where you just, you know, you have four great albums in a row and, and, and kind of a, a peak period for a band. And, and I think, you know, I'm sure you you had this with Let It Be by The Replacements, Tim, and, and, you know, Pleased to Meet Me, too, where, you know, you just don't think they can get better, or you're, not, or you're used to bands letting you down, and they continuously don't, mm-hmm. and um, it's such a great kind of experience to, to ride with a group that you love if you're a big music fan, and I, I feel like this album was one that, you know, of course, like, songs like Shot in the Arm and, and um, In a Jar and are great when you kind of first listen to them, and, and I, I really liked initially, I was not in the camp of, oh, I'm not sure I like this, this, son- this sound or the, the turn. This was actually um, right up my alley as far as my musical taste, more up my alley, to be honest. Um, and uh, But then, you know, like you said, you know, I've, I popped on Summer Teeth recently, you know, um, prior to kind of thinking about doing this episode. And, you know, songs like Nothing's Gonna Stand In My Way or, you know, um, ELT, mm-hmm. which you mentioned, Every Little Thing, are just really big, good pop songs, you know. And, mm-hmm. um, and themic almost, and, and all are very good live. And, you know, I mean, I think Shot in the Arm is, is probably a standard in, in every Wilco set, and they've kind of rearranged songs like Via Chicago um, into something a little more, like, um, just unique with the current lineup is, is just so talented musically. 
Um, you know, one funny story is the first song in the album, Can't Stand It, which I actually like, you know, it's a little jumpy and a little, you know, poppy and um, basically the record label, you know, which which became kind of the end of their record contract when Yankee Hotel Fox truck came out, came initially, you know, came with the, we don't hear a hit, kids. And um, and I, I've heard Jeff Tweedy talk, or maybe I read in his book, um, that, you know, it was the one time that he was like, fuck you, like, fine, we'll record one more song, but they made them, like, fly them out to, like, you know, a really expensive studio in L.A., and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just, like, all stops, like, we're gonna, you're gonna make us write another song, and um, we're gonna, like, take advantage of, of your p- wa- p- uh, wallet. Large ass. Yeah, yeah, and so, which I'm sure the, the you know, this album sold 200,000 copies, by the way, not exactly a hit, and definitely sold actually less than being there. Um, but, you know, it was actually, he wrote the song on a plane, on the plane out to LA. And he said it was kind of the first time in his life that like a song just didn't need to mean shit. And he realized like it could be good. You know, he likes, he was saying he likes the song, he was happy with it. And, but it was also, you know, not that every song he'd written had, you know, some sort of deeper meaning, but he really apparently had kind of, you know, pined and struggled over, you know, making sure that the lyrics he liked them or made sense or you know whatever in his mind and, and this was the first one that he kind of was just like you can write about anything in a short period of time it was almost like a test and he, you know he mm-hmm. said it really freed him post that to write songs you know and to not make everything so so heavy you know so weighty i like that that's yeah. cool anyway um, do you want to take a quick break listen to candy floss and come back and end this way we yeah so way sounds good Brother, brother, and uh, brother, 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 and it's a brother, brother episode. And Wynn and I just uh, had a fun time on our record shelf uh, episode talking about Wilco's Summer Teeth, our favorite album. Came out in March 1999, and uh, we kind of were uh, sparked by the uh, 20th anniversary of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which is also a, a fantastic album, and, and uh, it's one of those uh, could 1A, one Could 1B, be addressed at a exactly. later date, yeah. Um, so both are great, um, but we figured there'd be a lot of lot of uh, critics and, and write-ups on Yagi Hotel Foxtrot, so it's fun talking about this record, and um, 
you know, we're going to end this episode like we always do. Uh, Wyndham, what are you listening to? I am very, very... I think last time we talked, I was talking about how much I was anticipating Slow Horses on Apple Plus, which is a, um, a series based on a um, series of books, and it is a basically a um, you know a story about MI six agents that uh, fuck up and wind up in not being able to be fired, but not being. Uh, deft enough to be put in the field and so it's basically the ragtag team of losers amongst the British spy uh, <laughs> intelligentsia and uh, great cast Gary Oldman plays the ringleader a you know disheveled old booze bag um, and uh, you know classic cynic but one of the funnier characters I've seen in a long time on TV Kristen Scott Thomas plays the you know, hyper uh, political sort of uh, second in charge of the agency, and and um, it's a it's a great. I really love it. Um, of all things, uh, you know, we can tie it back to music, but Mick Jagger, I guess, is such a big fan of the series of books that he he sings the theme song to the uh, show. So nice. very funny. Very, what network uh, is that on? Apple Plus. Apple Plus got it. Um, and I am also going to prematurely laud, and I don't think I'm taking any risks here, um, Candy House by Jennifer Egan, uh, which is the sort of sibling uh, book to one of our all-time favorites, A Visit from the Goon Squad. There are, I think it is uh, a different book. It focuses more on <clears throat> artificial intelligence and in the internet, but it there are calls back to um, characters and situations from Goon Squad, and I am truly only about 30 pages into it, but I'm back in love. Um, it is, you know, she's just a master, and, um, you know, it makes you want to quit writing, um, because when you come, you know, when you run into somebody that good, but she is, she's unreal, and, um, I loved Goon Squad. You loved Goon Squad. I did. Um, I think this is going to be its rival. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited to watch and read that. And uh, I'm also not going out on a limb to? because I haven't watched as much of it as you have, And I, um, but I've loved every minute that I have watched in um, one of our, I can safely say, our favorites. And uh, I'm going to say Atlanta Season 3. I, uh, oh, my God, yeah. Uh, four episodes in. It is fucking berserk and brilliant. brilliant. And, uh, yeah, I just, it's, you know, just one of the, I don't know, it's just, it's one of the shows, I think you said, that it's like somebody just gave complete creative freedom and to really, you know... Uh, somebody who deserved it. Yeah. Um, God, and I'm Glover, what's his first name? Because I'm... Donald Glover, sorry. Donald yeah. Glover and his brother, Stephen. Stephen, that's right, yeah. For some reason, when I say Donald Glover, I always get who I know he has no relation Danny to. Danny Glover. Other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, am I getting the right one? Yeah, but, not um, to be confused with Corey Glover of Living Color either. Right, exactly. But, but um, Donald Glover, who, who who's a gem, and his brother, who's written a bunch of this season, I think most of the episodes I've, I've seen, um, absolutely out of this world. I don't 
I hope it's getting a ton of hype. I hope people are talking about it as much as, as I'm enjoying it because it's really excellent. Um, but I haven't seen a lot of, of buzz around it. I don't know if you have, but anyone we've turned on to, uh, the third member, Brother, Brother, Brother Christian, jumped in and is loving it. And, uh, you know, other friends that, have, that I've mentioned it to are really enjoying it as well. So it's Well, the other night when I was watching episode four, which is um, a remarkable um, sort of send-up and satire uh, that revolves around reparations. I mean, a subject. I just that watched that one. It was so good. <laughs> nobody's just, uh, you know, that is just, you know, so, you know, uh, radioactive, and and it just, it's it's an amazing episode of television. But I texted, I think both of you in the middle of it, and just said, you know, this is television goon squad. As far as I'm concerned, this is yeah, um, that's right. So you did, yeah. Taking it full circle. Uh, no, that's great. That, yeah. Really, really good it's stuff. It's just so keeps you off balance like nothing I've seen on television in a long time and yeah um, yeah it's it's phenomenal it's really like just getting dropped there is a, a sort of by you know through line but it's 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 like being dropped in a, in a really creative uh space and and kind of running wild with it so love it it's awesome um yeah and so uh let's throw some tunes on the never-ending playlist mm-hmm uh why don't you go first God, you know, I had a couple in my head, and I think I'm going to go with the band of the hour, and uh, I'm going to go with ELT by Wilco. I love that song, and it doesn't get on my right. playlist. <laughs> I am going to tip my hat to um, a person that we lost this week, um, uh, Chris Bailey, frontman of The Saints, uh, who died sadly this week of Brisbane's... Uh, Seminal punk rock band, um, and I'm going to put Stranded. I'm Stranded oh, by the song. Saints yeah. on. And uh, I, for the life of me, could not remember who used it recently, but it was at least the intro music or the credit sequence for something that I was watching. You know who always has it on it. their... Um, I know that uh, if you listen oh, to it's, Sound you know Opinions, what? It's, they do it. It's Sound Opinions. Yep. You're right. It might be their Desert um, Island disc thing, or Desert Island thing. Um, yeah, I, I do remember that. That's part of their intro. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I could thank you. I could not put my finger on it. Um, but you yeah, know what? I'm going to throw another one on for the deceased because we did lose uh, Tyler Hawkins as well, um, formerly Alanis Morissette's drummer and then best known for Foo Fighters drummer. Um, let's throw on Everlong too because it's, it's probably my favorite Foo Fighters. Fine thing with now. me. You know, you yeah, you it took a long first. time for you to come around on that. It did song, take me but, a long time. Uh, I'm, I'm admittedly hated it when it came out, and uh, now I, uh, I admittedly love it. So realize that it's genius. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Well, until next time. Sounds good. Um, talk soon. Right. Thanks. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer Damian Kendall and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.